0: Welcome to the Innovation Overground, the front porch of academic innovation where we try to find the coolest university technologies. You don't have to. You want to serve up some solutions to those problems and add to the volume and hopefully help them become actual things somewhere, especially in times like this ongoing pandemic. Thank you for joining us. My name is Charlie Litton. I'm joined by Tyler Scher, PhD in Science Wizard. Hey, Tyler, how are you?
1: Hey, not too bad. How are you doing, Charlie?
0: Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, and also with us is uh, Joe Rungi, Dr. Law Dog, an entrepreneurial werewolf. What's the word,
2: Joe? Hey, Charlie. How you doing? Nice to remotely hear you.
0: Nice to remotely – very nice, actually, to remotely hear you. Um, <clears throat> any, any other words of wisdom for our audience?
2: Well, while we're reveling in the comfort of, uh, of camaraderie, I invite the audience to please rate and review the podcast. Please uh, take a moment to uh, drop us a line. Let us know what in this crazy time you want to see from university innovation. Now more than ever, we need to be innovative and find ways to get through this horrendous circumstance and uh, make life better.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, where we left off uh, last week, uh, we did talk a little bit about some of the things that University of Nebraska is doing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, and that was just really tip of the iceberg. We know that universities everywhere are putting a lot to it. And I thought it'd be good to go over some of those ideas that are going on outside University of Nebraska, at least outside the state. Uh, but before I do that, I wanted just a quick uh, little housekeeping note for our listeners. Uh, we are doing this remotely. And so, technology might give us some fits and so please bear with us the sound quality is probably not the same as you're used to and um, who knows what sort of chimes and beeps and children might run in so please forgive us those interruptions but uh, anyway all that said let's let's go over some more of those uh, those COVID-19 related technologies Joe I you were tasked to hunt the interwebs and find things
2: that are going on at some of our universities what do you got? I think we have to give it a big shout out to the association of university technology managers oh yes uh, they have uh, kind of always been uh when we started doing this show one of the first things we do is go to autumn's online listing and just try to cobble together things that we thought were interesting from there and so uh that's really all i did this week is uh looked at COVID 19 and found a couple of things that i wanted to talk about that came out of autumn's website And so uh, we'll include links uh, in the show notes to all of these individual programs associated with what we're talking about here. Um, But the the focus, I think, uh, on uh, what we're doing for COVID-19 is largely uh, a combination of repurposing existing things and and finding new opportunities to to apply interesting technologies. Uh, The first one of those is something that comes out of Northeastern University, which is a a Boston-based school. And it's an AI drug development platform. This is a, a topic that's always been interesting to me. Um, you know, we've talked on this show in the past about how it costs uh, thirty quadrillion dollars in order to be able to even make half a drug. Wait, is and, that inflation adjusted or? Uh, that's using quadrillions of nineteen eighty-three dollars. Right? Okay,
0: got it. All
1: right. Um, <laughs>
2: nonetheless. I mean, the whole point of you know drug prices is is definitely a topic that we've always kind of come at slant ways but i do think that one of those real questions is why does it cost so much to, to make drugs and and how can we reinvent the drug discovery process so at least changing the math on that back end so there's not so much uh expense that needs to be recouped in, in drug costs
0: well, I know you're kind of a little tongue-in-cheek there, but it's no joke that how expensive it is, especially when you factor in the cost of failure. I I mean, numbers right. are all over the place, but I've heard one number, uh, like a billion dollars for every new drug.
2: Right. And like you said, Charlie, a lot of the cost is asked to cover the 20 drugs that, you know, blew up in the uh, runway and the hangar. Yeah. On the-
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. With the brain before they're even drugs. And so – I think that making smarter drug development is always a topic that's interesting to me. Um, You know, if anyone sort of addresses that, I immediately prick up my ears and go, yes, let's talk more about that. So Northeastern University, uh, they have a software platform that uses uh, what they're calling network medicine, which is a topic that I don't really know much about. But really what they're doing is they're, they're looking at artificial intelligence based on host pathogen interaction. And Tyler kind of being a a microbiologist probably can speak more about this, but really what it looks at is the underlying biology of how the sort of alteration in biochemical pathways in cells are perturbed by the underlying pathogen. And they look specifically at uh, mechanisms in the heart and the lungs to see what sort of modifies. And so they have a whole profile built for COVID-19. It's looking at how on a sort of pathway by pathway basis is COVID-19 changing the biology of people that it infects. And then it works backwards to repurpose existing drugs in order to be able to find some sort of therapeutic approach that doesn't require new FDA approval. So they already have this platform which was built around uh, repurposing existing drugs. And they just sort of tuned it in to really start exploring the underlying biological interactions that patients have when they are suffering from COVID-19. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that does. And the host pathogen, pathogen interaction um, focus is, is particularly interesting. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, you, know, you, you can think of it as, uh, when, as a, a pathogen as it moves throughout the host, which is in this case, we're talking about us, the human body. Um, As it comes to different, you know, checkpoints along the way to infection, it's going to have to um, dodge different uh, barriers or different um, uh, guards, for example. And so it it does that by um, differentiating its metabolic response by expressing different proteins um, and things like that. So the host pathogen interaction is uh, it's a um, dynamic process.
2: Right, and so part of the, the dynamic process that's kind of listed in there is they've identified 81 drugs that they consider to be leads, and those leads are basically, you know, potential future drugs that they could start for, for treatment there, um, and that's really oh,
0: Sorry, Joe, to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. The, those leads, are those COVID-19 specific leads, or are those just leads in general for any sort of uh, infection-type uh...
2: These are COVID-19 specific, so these okay. are drugs that are able to ameliorate some of the, you know, ongoing disease process associated with COVID-19. Okay, cool.
0: So what's next? What do they have
2: to do? What's the next step then for this? These are still just leads, and so um, this whole process is done in the computer to kind of reverse engineer from existing drugs, interesting therapeutic approaches, so from that, then, they would need to recalculate uh, how to adapt those drugs for COVID-19, start figuring out the clinical studies that are listed there. The nice thing is, though, is, is sort of what's next for this particular uh, approach is because these are approved drugs, you're going to get accelerated uh, clinical testing. Yeah, so A lot of them are going to be approved for other purposes, So you'll have to have FDA paperwork associated with it. But all that initial stuff related to toxicity, these are drugs that are already safe and effective for at least one purpose. So repurposing them for another is a significantly shorter pathway.
1: And and I'm sorry, sorry, Joe, this sounds like, you know, maybe I misunderstood a little bit too. These are more, these are more looking at therapeutics that are already available for treating certain conditions and now kind of repurposing them for treating, you know, similar conditions that might be incited by, by COVID. Is that more accurate? So I
2: think it all comes down to that nexus of host-pathogen uh, okay. interactions. So these are essentially drugs that are related to those pathways, not necessarily related to infections. So yeah. you have to modulate those pathways in order to treat the infection. I think yeah. that's the point, or you know, combat hmm. infection or whatever. And so the fact that the nexus is in biology is what was really interesting. Now the AI for that—that—that's that to me is a really interesting application of AI because. You know, I remember as a young scientist sitting in to those sort of cancer biology meetings where it's, you know, SOS interacts with SOS2, which interacts to, you know, PDX4, which interacts with, and I mean, it's just mind-numbing, and I remember exactly then thinking, someday I hope I have a podcast where I can talk about computers <laughs> I don't want to well, so, be
0: well, speaking of computers, I, I remember, you know, um a while back, Joe, we, we were trying or you were working on getting a, a sort of an in silica type testing system going at, at University of Nebraska at Omaha, UNO, and they have a, you know, top level, like top 25 in the nation, at least it was at one point, uh, supercomputer system there. Actually, yeah. at the time, it was a super duper computer. Super duper? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I dropped the duper. Um, yeah. So the, uh, so that's. Is this is this the same level of 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 simulate is it a simulation that's going on? No, then?
2: the the stuff that's going on in Northeastern is way more pragmatic. So okay. the the super duper computer project we were engaged in was looking at uh, modeling drugs based upon uh, physical simulations of drug receptor interactions. So that project we had a novel biological uh, biological pathway what that we wanted to manipulate with drugs. Rather than just test lots and lots of drugs, beforehand we were going to have a computer essentially simulate those types of interactions. And it's really interesting because they did that with a lot of really complicated graphics cards, which are normally used for computer gaming. Right. The same geometry calculation was then used for drug uh, target interaction simulation. And that's still something that's near and dear to my heart and something that I actually am hoping we can get to do at Unitech sometime. Um, you know, there's a couple of projects that are looking promising where we might be able to fund work like that. But regardless, I think for this particular project, they're going a totally different route. They're looking at pragmatic data, known existing drugs, and how they affect the body, and then overlaying with that of how COVID affects the body, and then working backwards to those drugs. Okay. So much more. That, that is a that is a less mechanistic approach and a more outcome driven.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Okay yeah which is i mean so that's sort of regardless of exactly how covid's doing its thing it's the 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 implication being that if it's if it's producing the same result that can be um, positively impacted by pre-existing drugs then those could have an an effect that-,
0: well, that that sounds like a pretty level-headed approach i mean why is this are you telling me then that nobody else has been doing this before this type of approach
2: no this is actually a very this is very much the, the history of drug development okay all right, that it's makes all, sense. All it's right. all observational. The thing that's different now is they're plugging this into the brain of the computer and scaling yeah. it up. Ah, got it. Okay. So the the second approach is pretty different in that sense. It's a very um, it's a very technology forward, different way of doing things that addresses kind of a big uh, issue I see at least in um, screening and testing for COVID nineteen. You know, Tyler, feel free to correct me. I'm, I've been out of the lab a lot longer than you have. But a lot of the current issues related to testing, I think, really need to have an appreciation of how difficult the kind of tests we do for COVID-19 are because they're PCR-based tests. So the way those work is use enzymes to amplify targeted DNAs from specimens. So the first step to seeing if you have COVID-19 is growing up all the COVID-19 DNA that's in a specimen that they collect from you and that process you have to be really careful because if you screw it up you either won't grow the right things or you might grow up the wrong things which will then give you a false positive or a false negative those pcr Correct. tests are adapted from laboratory tests which are research-based and i think it's really still difficult to do those kind of on the professional scale that we expect for medical diagnostics. is that a fair statement tyler
1: yeah i mean i think that's i think that's a fair statement yeah So one of the things I really wanted
2: to do was find if there are non-PCR based molecular diagnostics. So for a lot of the diagnostics that are done to determine if you have a disease or not, they're done with antibodies. And antibodies are fairly low maintenance, they're pretty easy to use, and they're crazy specific. So that means that you could automate them, have stupid robots, do them, whatever. You don't need a technician to do a PCR assay. And so another uh, technology from Northeastern, which is again a school in Boston, uh, they're using something called rolling circle quantification. Um, Tyler probably knows this uh, better than I do being a microbiologist, but rolling circle is a way of like plasmid based uh, replication that I think bacteria do where instead of, you know, creating single lines of DNA, you loop the DNA into a circle and just have the enzymes go crazy and they go round and yeah. round, round and round and, and they grow up lots of DNA quickly. Is that a good explanation Tyler
1: yeah that's actually a pretty good uh, that's (laughs) serviceable. visual yeah no that's yeah so so we can go uh so these bacteria can replicate um with rolling circle really really fast
2: right which is kind of clever right because that's what you really need to be able to do but the other thing is that's really really specific it will only create a circle if it finds the exact DNA that it's looking for and so Because of that specificity, using this sort of rolling circle-based chemistry, you don't have to do that pre-amplification step. You can just do the amplification directly off of that specimen. And that makes the technology a little bit more robust than polymerase chain reaction technology, which in order to actually quantify, you have to do that first step of amplification. So this is essentially amplification-free molecular diagnostics that are, are, you know, helpful to sort of more rapidly engage in that, that diagnosis. And, you know, I know that the United States has been seen as falling down by not being able to scale PCR, and you know, I think ultimately that gets to be a political question, but I do think that one of the things would be interesting to sort of better relate to the public is like PCR assays on scale are really complicated and to do lots and lots of them with like the level of specificity we're demanding is really, really hard. It was a technology that was you know largely a research-based technology. And I think it's been hard to get that to adapt to sort of serve as a molecular-based diagnostic other chemistry is something that would be really interesting to be able to do. Yeah, Why I
1: just, is it I just, so hard? I'll just add on to that just a little, a tiny caveat that, um, you know, while while it is it is uh, burdensome and it has been, it's been difficult for us to be able to make it, you know, uh, uh, efficient to be able to do bat large scale batch testing. Um, I, I, th- I think part of the problem has just been, you know, sort of the same fear that we had with, with hospital beds and, and, and capacity. I mean, our infrastructure is built on the capacity to do exactly the, the types and the amount of PCR tests that we're used to doing. Right. And, and no more. Um, and suddenly we're being asked to do a whole lot more.
2: <laughs> so one question I have, Tyler, you know, I remember, you know, PCR took for freaking ever when I did it in the early aughts, right? Like, I mean, you sort of go in early, Start your first run, it'd be done like at lunchtime. If you're lucky you got a second one in to do sort of overnight or whatever. I know it's a lot faster now, but still like that's just the PCR step. The analysis step too would be like a whole nother level. Is is PCR like comparable in its speed from specimen to information? Is it comparable to like a, an immunoassay or is it just does it take longer?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, from from my understanding, the, I mean, the the PCR based uh, diagnostics um, that that a lot of the public health labs are running across the country, and, and we're running here, um, can can process hundreds or thousands of samples per day and have the results to within uh, you know eight to twelve to at most twenty four hours back to the patients. Um, wow. That is really yeah. efficient. Yeah so it's it's fairly so but 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 again we're we've reached basically you know max capacity on being able to run these right and and on top of that um as we as, as we discussed last week you know we're at max capacity on even being able to manufacture them so so
2: i think the last technology is something that is kind of interesting too and it it comes back to a topic that is always interesting on the show which is crispr so the thing that's important to keep in mind is that crispr uh uh, evolved as a a methodology for bacterial immunology it was a way in which bacteria could rapidly identify viral dna and enzymatically chew it up real good and that same approach would be very effective as a diagnosed diagnostic because you can essentially have the CRISPR find the particular unique elements of the covid19 um a genome that are sort of you know proof positive that it's present yeah. and so kind of like the rolling circle quantification and this is a technology from the university of connecticut they are able to do direct amplification from the specimen so there's no need for that amplification stuff and it's highly sensitive because it's this very conserved CRISPR mechanism uh, the thing that you know bacteria have been doing for you know 20 jillion years and have gotten really efficient at Um, And the other thing that's nice, too, is when you do polymerase chain reaction-based diagnostics, you have to have primers. So you have to produce these sort of little DNAs that are going to be able to find the flanking segments of DNA. Now, the guides that are used in CRISPR, Tyler, are those relative, are those simpler than than DNA primers? Because so much of doing good PCR is getting your primers right, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I believe they can be shorter sequences, although I think they're barely they're on maybe the same you know they're they're in the same ballpark. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought too. Because one of the
2: things I talked about for this um, this platform, this CRISPR based uh, diagnostic platform, is that they wouldn't need the same kind of um, primers in order to be able to build it. So I guess the guides are smaller or simpler or something along those lines. The thing that really caught my eye about this. And again, uh, just to be clear, this is a CRISPR-based diagnostic for viruses general. They've done it with HIV and with SARS, but not with, I believe COVID-19 specifically. But I mean, COVID-19 and SARS are kind of two peas in a pod, I guess. Um, But the idea is that they were able to identify the presence from as little as one copy of viral DNA and four of viral RNA. I always wonder how they quantified that, but that was really impressive.
1: Yeah. I mean, with, yeah, with the high fidelity of CRISPR here, I mean, the, the analogy or one analogy that comes to mind anyway is, I mean, this is, this is now the, the, the ability to use CRISPR to detect, you know, a a viral infection um, is, is uh, comparatively the amount of information that you need to detect with CRISPR uh, is, is at a, is, is at the same scale apart from the amount of, of, you know, blood you would need at a crime scene or to do a DNA positive test or hair. Um, how, how that was, you know, a, 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 scale, a scale different from, from prior to, to any of that DNA technology, just, you know, actually needing like like a video recording or you need to you need to see the person, you need to have much more information. Um, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but, you know, th- just the amount of information you need to do an accurate identification with CRISPR is just so much smaller. So I think the takeaway from this Is that it's way
2: harder to get away with murder now?
0: (laughs) So okay, well, that crosses a few things off my list. Um, So I'm I'm curious how much time that saves. Then, if you don't need to do the this this amplification part of the of the process, I mean, how much time does that part alone usually take by itself?
1: That'd be a couple hours. Okay. Yeah. So
2: you know, I think that. The thing that also to kind of step out of the COVID-19 moment, when reading the the CRISPR analysis and kind of Tyler's example there, it really made me realize that CRISPR is more than a genome editing tool. It's basically a guided way to find things in DNA. It's It's like a Google for genomic information, right? You just format the search, CRISPR finds it no matter where it is, even if there's not much of it, it just, boom, it's there. And I think that you know, applying what was ostensibly a genome editing tool into a molecular diagnostic tool. That's super cool because it is it really shows that this sort of enzymatic driven methodology that was just out there and we were just not clever enough to find until a couple of years ago.
1: I <laughs> mean, um, George Church has, has some startups around, you know, environmental surveillance using CRISPR. So, I mean, if these things were fully mature, I mean, theoretically we could detect coronavirus in a building using CRISPR technology. Man. So, okay. I I know there's a lot
0: of talk about, about, you know, testing for antibodies now to see if, now that'd be a good way to test if somebody had it, right? Could, could this be applied then to test for antibodies
2: too? Well, actually this would replace the need to test for antibodies. Antibodies test to see if you had an immune reaction to COVID-19 at some point in the past, but if, you had a CRISPR test that could be deployed broadly and inexpensively, you would know in real time when someone had CRISPR in their body. Right? But, wouldn't,
0: but wouldn't it be useful, yeah. though, to know right now who maybe had it and didn't even know it?
2: Right, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm just saying you could do two different analyses, right? Like the CRISPR test would be like real time. You would be mm-hmm. able to know like a heat map of who's got – the coronavirus in whatever your locale is, you overlay that then with your you know antibody data, which would then figure out okay who has had it you know in the past I don't know x many months, and you know you can sort of see where it goes in time. So, but again, like the the antibody test for a long time is the only way to know who even really had it, right? Yeah, that was the only way you could do broader epidemiological data. If you had an inexpensive CRISPR test that could do <laughs> it in real time, then you would just look at who had it two weeks ago rather than rely on the antibody results in there. Is that right, Tyler?
1: Yeah, no. And then even taking it a step further, almost getting sci-fi and this is what George, a lot of, you know, George Church has a startup based on this concept of, of environmental surveillance using CRISPR. I mean, the it's, it's, it's theoretically possible. It's entirely possible that the next pandemic we, you know, we were able to track the spread through airports and trains and subways in real time with these environmental sensors. That's interesting. And scary. Yeah. And scary. Yeah. <laughs> that, that should, it should definitely scare you a little bit too.
2: You <laughs> know, it we, used to be so much easier to be sick. Like getting disease will be like murder in the eighties. You know, it was easy to get away with it then, but man, in the future,
1: <laughs> we got the pre-cons. Isn't that what it was from the, the <laughs> what movie was that again Where they, they're able to, to uh, um, arrest people for pre-murder right a minority oh, yeah.
0: report yeah
1: minority report yeah um,
0: <laughs> there's a philip K dick story um, all right I think we've uh, <laughs> I think
2: we're gonna run off the rails here pretty soon so I think it's time <laughs> to come to ground um, please uh, take a moment to check the show notes we'll have links to the autumn marketplace which is a great resource if you're looking for university innovation, what that you want to license and make a startup around. Uh, these are three great opportunities currently available.
0: Yeah, but Joe, before, I, before we sign up, I do want to ask one question. What was next for that,
2: um, that CRISPR technology? Um, what's, what's it going to take to get that thing out there? So with any diagnostic platform, you need to be able to not just show sensitivity and specificity, but you also have to be able to produce it to scale and show it works every single time. So um, there's a lot of ways they could definitely go with it. But if we wanted to register it with the FDA, we're going to need a large uh, biobank of people that they know have and have not already had the disease and do a blind test on that. Otherwise, they're going to have to do a big prospective clinical study, uh, which would basically be almost like a drug test. But instead of checking the efficacy of the drug, they would look to see the accuracy and reliability of the diagnostic platform. Okay, so that sounds like that's quite a ways out then. Yes, that would be a while to get it through FDA. There are currently abbreviated FDA processes, given that we're in a crisis, so maybe they could take advantage of one of those. Okay,
0: Okay. all right, thank you. Um, I do uh, I want to thank our sponsors, Unimet, the Tech Transfer and Commercialization Office for the University of Nebraska and the, uh, the University of Nebraska Medical Center and the University of Nebraska at Omaha. I do want to thank KVNO Studios, who usually let us use their facilities. Um, so uh, and also Unitech, our tech transfer um, incubator. Our, <laughs> what are we calling that? Research, whatever. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yeah, that thing. All right. So for we Tyler, we Sh- do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for Tyler, Sharon, Joe Rungi. I'm Charlie. Litton, saying thank you and join us every Monday on Unimed's Innovation Overground.